Yeah, Lord. God, I'm excited about what I have to talk about today. Let me speak it well. It deserves to be spoken well. Let me speak as I should. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started a series. It's actually going to turn out to be a two-month series. We're going to take kind of the beginning of the summer, and we're going to walk through one of the books of the New Testament. We're going to go through the book of Colossians. And Colossians is kind of a shorter book. It's only got four chapters, but we are going to break it up. We're going to try to go kind of deep, not super, super ultra deep, but we're going to go into the whole book. We're going to walk through Paul's whole train of thought, and we're going to bring out the truth that he wanted to convey. And I'm pretty excited about it because it is a dense, awesome book. Last week we started with verses 1 to 14, and I'll briefly recap. Paul has never met the people in Colossae. He's never been to this city. This is, it's not a backwater town. You know, it's in present-day Turkey, but it is not a big, thriving metropolis, okay? It's not a, a New York, you know what I mean? It used to be, it was a couple hundred years before Paul wrote to them, it used to be one of the main east-west trade route cities. It was a bustling town. But these two other towns, Laodicea and I think Hierapolis, on either side, overtook it. So it's a descending town. It's kind of a has-been town in the Roman Empire. And in fact, funny note, in my big, fat NIV study Bible, it likes to give you know maps and things of the ancient cities. Like, this is what Philippi probably looked like, and this is what Rome probably looked like. There's nothing for Colossae. <laughs> you don't even get a map, like a pretend map on a study Bible. It's too bad, guys. But Paul says, hey... I thank God when I think of you. I am so glad that you have faith in God and love for people. I want you to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of the wisdom that the Holy Spirit brings you so that you can lead a life worthy of Jesus. And I want you guys to be full of them. And I want you guys to shine that out. He says the gospel is moving forward in the whole world and you guys are a part of that. So he brings this kind of has-been town into the global scene, you know. He casts a little vision for them. And he says, we're praying for you guys. This is what you guys are taking part in. And then he ends with thoughts on Jesus. He ends saying, don't forget, you should rejoice because Jesus has brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's transferred you over. And we talked a little bit how that, how that means when you become a new creation in Christ, you give God your life. He doesn't say, hey, that's great. I'll see you in heaven when you die. Peace. And just leave you there in your spot. There's something miraculous that happens right then. You're moved, your citizenship moves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and you become a real, actual child of God with a share in the divine inheritance. What does that mean exactly? I'm going to be real honest. I don't completely know, but I'm looking forward to finding out. It's got to be better than the alternative. That was kind of a joke. It's going to be awesome. Today we're going to continue with verses 15 to 23 of Colossians chapter 1. I was not going to do a big long intro, but I think I kind of need to. And the reason I want to is because there's a lot of truth in here, but truth without a context just, it doesn't hit that hard, you know what I mean? Like, if I say God is the all in all, those are just kind of words, you know, we can hear that and we can nod and say yes, whatever that means, but I, I assert that that thing I don't understand is true, amen, and then you're secretly nodding off and wondering when the game starts. So, I'm going to share a little bit of first century context today. 
This book was written a long time ago, about 2,000 years ago, right? Probably in the, the mid-first century, so think like 50 AD. Is that a long time ago? I probably wouldn't get the culture from 100 years ago. 200 years ago would be complete foreign. You know, I wouldn't get it at all. 2,000 years ago, and we're going back in time, we're crossing an ocean, and we're in the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, some things you want to know about this world is that there was this really famous guy about 300 years before named Plato. Anybody heard of him? And then him and his buddies, they changed the way people think. They changed it. So predominant all over the culture, you have this belief that spiritual things are really, really good. And that matter, stuff you can touch and see, including your own body, is at the very best not so great. It's not as good as spiritual things. And at the worst, it's evil. It was called dualism. And people didn't go around and ask each other, do you believe the spirit is good and matter is evil? Yes, brother, I believe that. You know, they didn't think about it that deep. It was just part of the culture. And then different belief systems started to come out of that. Well, what does it mean that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad or the physical doesn't matter? How do we, how do we live in that truth? And philosophers were trying to work that out. But it was kind of foundational to the time, culture, and place. And Paul is writing into this time and culture and place. Another thing is happening. Rome used to be a democracy, Right? Is the great republic. And then all of a sudden this guy named Caesar comes along and he says, nix that, now we're an empire. And I'm an emperor. And I'm going to be calling the shots around here. Big change. Okay, this is fairly recent in history. And the emperor started to want people to worship him. Imagine if the president of the United States said, we're going to have a few minor changes. I know this election year has been hard on everyone. So I'm just going to make it easier. Okay? We're going to abolish the, the Senate and Congress and all that. You guys can just call me the king or the queen based on who wins. And one more thing, uh, I want you to call me the son of God. If you could do that for me, that'd be great. Would that be a little strange? And, and if you don't call me the son of God or the queen of God or whatever, Hillary gets it, and I'm not, this is not a political talk. Just imagine how odd that would be, depending on whoever you want to win. If they win and they say, can you please worship me as divine? And if you don't, Diane Davis, you're a bad American and you're guilty of treason. Well, that puts you in a real weird spot, wouldn't it? Well, the early Christian church found themselves in exactly that spot by about 60 AD. This crazy emperor named Nero's on the scene, and he's like lunatic out of his mind, right? And he's like, hey, everybody should worship me as a god. I'm pretty great. I'm going to burn down the city, and I want to worship me as a god anyway. And then the emperor who came a little later named Domitian only increased the intensity. And he demanded that people all over, like, sacrifice to him and all stuff. It got wonky, guys. Really, really weird. They wanted people to call him Lord and God by Domitian's time. Where do we know these titles from? Scripture. Right. So we're going to read some stuff that is heavy-hitting truth in this time. It is relevant, it is right now, and it is contrary to what the establishment is trying to make people believe. Alright, intro over. Let's jump right in. We ended 1-14 to last week talking about how awesome Jesus was and exactly what he did. Now Paul is going to go on in verses 15-20, to and he's going to say what a lot of scholars think might be an ancient hymn of the church. And all this is in the back of your bulletin. 
I'm going to go straight through the outline today. Some people think this might be an ancient hymn because it's just so amazing in the way it talks about Christ and the way it's written. It's kind of poetic. So we're going to go through this thing about Jesus here in verses 15 through 20. Verse 15 says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to read through to 20 and then we'll stop back. 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever that means exactly, we'll talk about it. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. But 2,000 years later, across an ocean in America, we're forgiven if that sounds like a whole bunch of really deep words without the heavy-hitting impact that it used to have. Okay? So we're going to walk through it. Verse 15. First thing that sticks out at me, if you want to do Bible study, you look for key words, right? First, you download the Blue Letter Bible app <laughs> on your smartphone. Did anybody get that after last week? Yes! Amen. Dude, cheat, man. It is... Awesome, glorious cheating. If you want to be a Bible scholar in like 15 seconds, Blue Letter Bible, I'm telling you. <laughs> Look for key words. Image sticks out of me. What is Paul saying? Is he saying God, Jesus was just the image of God? Like, not actually God, just kind of a picture of him. Well, when we look at that, we find out that's exactly what it doesn't mean. Image here can mean likeness, representation, or manifestation. See, Jesus himself admitted Nobody's seen God. Somebody said, show us God the Father. I think it was Thomas. And Jesus is like, nobody's seen God, but I'll tell you what, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen God. God's a spirit. He's invisible. But Jesus is God that we can perceive. He's the manifestation of God. Amen. It's a statement of deity. Next thing that sticks out to me is firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation. Well, does that mean that he's just created? Again, he's not actually divine. He's just created. And he's the first thing created, so he's the firstborn. Not so fast. This is a statement of status. And it's also a statement of kingship. Oh, have to think like the ancient people used to think. This word means to have first place or to have the highest rank. And also in the ancient world, when a god wanted to enthrone a king, sometimes in the pagan writings and stuff, the god would be depicted as begetting the king. Psalm 2 has Yahweh saying, today you're my son, today I've begotten you. And what is he doing? He's not having a child, he's instituting a king. Check out Psalm 2, it is a great psalm. This is conjuring Psalm 2 imagery on purpose. Psalm 2 is about God's everlasting king. So this firstborn imagery is first place, it's kingship, it's preeminence, it's superiority. It was a term they used back in the day. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We get that. Okay, Paul, you mean everything. But why this next part? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay. 
All things were created through him and for him. First thing you notice, he says all things an awful lot, doesn't he? He's saying all things all over the place. He wants to hammer home to these people. There is nothing that wasn't created through Jesus. Literally everything. If you can see it, it was Jesus' doing. If you can't see it, it was Jesus' doing. And then he says, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. What is that about? Interesting note. Who's heard of this pernicious heresy It was really popular starting about the 2nd century called Gnosticism. Anybody a total nerd like me? All right, we got one, two, yes, represent. This book, when I got it in my undergraduate program, it's called Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Blomberg. The guy handed me the book and he says, this will probably be the most useful book you get in this program. You will keep it forever. That was four and a half years ago. And then he was right. Because this guy talks about a lot of stuff I always go back to. And he's talking about Gnosticism in this book. Man, oh man, the Gnostics believe some weird stuff. I'll tell you just one of the things they believe is that there was this God, right? But he was distant. He was unknowable, okay? But from this God emanated these other beings, right? And these other beings were responsible for creating stuff, okay? Well, here Paul is directly refuting what is possibly the birth of this mindset. He's like, whoa, time out. No, 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 no. God is the, Jesus is the fullness of the deity, guys. He's God and man. Everything was made through this one Jesus. Stop thinking about all these other weird angelic deities, which, by the way, they call thrones, dominions, powers, They had a really elaborate, made-up system of an angelic hierarchy. And Paul's saying, forget all that garbage, man. It's Jesus. This hit hard 2,000 years ago across an ocean in the Roman Empire. So he's saying all things that were created were created through Jesus. And not only that, but for him. What does that mean? Well, what is Jesus? Jesus is the king The story of the four Gospels is the story of God becoming king over all creation. This is being brought home to me right now. I'm reading a book called, fittingly, How God Became King by M.T. Wright. Dig into that if you can read his scholarly English language. I'm having a hard time. Maybe you'll do better than me. But man, it's, it's reviving this idea. Jesus is the king. Psalm 2, man. Firstborn over all creation. He is the authority, right? He is supreme. He's calling the shots. He is in charge. That's what Paul is trying to say. These other things are made up. They don't even exist. And everything that was actually real, that's actually created, is created through Jesus. Bam, bam, this nail is getting hit. All things, all things, all things. And he is before all things, verse 17. And in him all things hold together. Kind of self-explanatory. If all things were created through him, he was first, right? He's before everything that was created. But this also speaks to his superiority and supremacy. He's before as in over and above. Before all things, uh and in him all things hold together. Weird statement. I'm going to spend just one second on that. The Bible teaches that God is not a hands-off God. Amen. Who's experienced this? God is not distant. God is close. 
The Bible also teaches that it's by God's will, he calls it his logos, his word, his active doing that keeps creation held together. Like he is so not distant, he's still got his hands on the job, right? He's not hands off, he's hands on. He's holding everything together. And this isn't just here. In fact, if we want to see an excellent, almost a recap of the same ideas, you can pop forward in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, right at the beginning, verses 1 through 4, this is what you'll read. I'm going to start in chapter 2. That says in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Same idea. Everything created through Jesus. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Amen. Same thing. He's not hands off. He's still upholding. He's still actively involved. And it is beyond our comprehension and amazing and wonderful that we can experience that upholding in our own life. That is another message. I'll try not to go down that rabbit trail. But it's true. He's still holding everything together, including me. And then it says this. Not only is he supreme, he's made everything that's made. All that other imaginary stuff is garbage. Paul, by the way, he wasn't afraid to say these other worldviews and ideas, God love them, they're wrong. And they need the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus is everything. And these other things are nothing. These other things are nothing. We need to have that same boldness with love. Don't be a jerk. You don't get permission to be a jerk just because you're right. Everybody needs to hear that. Verse 18. Jesus didn't only create everything. He's the head of the body, the church. The head of the body, the church. Was anybody here when I talked about church and I played like the four-minute video from uh, my favorite movie, Pacific Rim? <laughs> Right? It's the scene where the Jaeger... Am I alone on this specific ground? Thank you, Jesse Dude. Thank you, Keith. You know, the big Jaeger robot is fighting a monster in the ocean and they save the little tiny boat, right? It's like a huge shipping boat. And like the Jaeger hero robot just sets it over here and then whoops the crap out of the monster. It was great. And there's a scene where the two people controlling the robot, that's the hero, they're in the head, right? And they're dropped down into the body and then the body comes to life. And the body does what the head wants it to do. Similar image, although I don't think Paul had Pacific Rim in mind, but maybe, prophetically, he looked in the future and saw the best movie ever made. It's possible. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> Opinion mixed in here. Hey, this word head's an interesting word. It can mean both authority and your literal physical noggin. Just like in English, where we say this is the head of the company and we mean it's the authority, right? But it can also mean like the head of Anthony. And in fact, sometimes they used it in reference to, uh, to capital punishment, like off with his head, meaning kill him, not necessarily take his head all the time, because to extinguish or remove the head is to extinguish life. Interesting. And this word he uses for body, he's the head of the body, which is the church. He continues that image and uses the word for actual physical body. Jesus is the head of the body. And it's the Jaeger picture, right? Where Jesus is coming down and he's giving life and we're doing the stuff and he's calling the shots. And that's what the church is supposed to be. I'm happy to be a part of that because we get to fight and win against giant, cool-looking monsters. <laughs> sorry, forgive me. That's, actually, I'm not, I'm not sorry. Maybe that's the worst part. Nicole says that's the worst part. 
<laughs> you remove Jesus from the church. Here's the lesson we can take from this. You remove the life of the church. The church needs to be centered around nothing else and no one else other than Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ's spirit in you. Alright? Jesus is the center of the church, the life of the church. He's what it centers around. He's the point. The head of the body, which is the church. We are all monster-defeating mech warriors for Jesus if we are plugged into the church. It says he's the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Yes, he's the beginning. He's before everything. The firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Paul is, is talking in terms that are very polemic in this culture. Remember, this is a spirit good, body bad culture. And Jesus, he's using body language. He's the head of the body of the church, and that's what he likes. All right? And he's saying he's the firstborn from the dead. He came back from the dead. He was resurrected. We believe that on the third day, right? Jesus literally came back in a literal physical body, and he's going to keep it forever. And this is the promise that all of us are going to come back with a literal physical body that we are going to keep forever. The catch is, some of us will keep that forever in the presence of God, and some of us will keep that forever outside the presence of God, depending on what we do with Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, no matter how you define hell, which is real, by the way, even if it is an eternal recess with no teacher on duty, without the Spirit of God and with all goodness removed from human nature, we will make that up. Okay? But everybody gets a resurrection. And Jesus is the first one. He's the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he might be preeminent. Yeah, he won first place by going through what he went through. Ringtone by Levi Sager. <laughs> 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just a minute on this sentence. I know we're, this is unusual. This isn't what we normally do. We're going verse by verse and it's cool. This is another polemical statement. This is another, this is a fighting word from Paul. Okay, he's throwing punches in this paragraph. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You remember when I talked about all those angelic entities that they imagined emanating from the divine? Well, they had a fancy term for those, and they said that all of that taken together, all these angelic deities or emanations or spirits that came out of the divine and the, the divine thing that they originated from, all of that is the fullness of the divine, right? By the second century, they had this all worked out. And Paul is saying, nope, that's way too hard. You guys don't have to make it that hard. It's Jesus. All the divinity there is, everything that is divine is centered in Jesus Christ. And he uses the same word, the fullness. It's all in Jesus. Yes. Is he really trying to make a point here? He is really trying to make a point here. It would be hard to miss his urgency if we were 2,000 years ago across an ocean in the Roman Empire. We couldn't miss it. And through him, this is verse 20, we're almost done, I know it's hot. Speaking of which, you guys can turn those fans on in the back if you pull the short swing. That might save some people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Another gigantic statement. There are so many gigantic statements after gigantic statements. Paul is saying that God reconciled the creation that was fallen to himself, made peace, 
brought everything back to a peaceful union through the blood of Jesus. Now, that was a violent fight, okay? A lot of people think Christianity, I've heard it said Christianity is too easy. Like, oh, all you have to do is believe and then you're good. I'm like, whoa, you know the door you have to walk through to take advantage of that? It's Jesus' sacrifice. That was not easy, guys. Jesus won that. He's preeminent over everything because of it. And because of that, we are reconciled to God. But not only us, it says all things. Think about this. If reconciled here, and I'm going to read the, the definition, it means to bring back to a state of harmony. Interesting. For us, that means we get to be at peace with God and become children of God, children of God. But what might that mean for like, oh, I don't know, rebelling angels? Some of these not great angelic spirits that Paul's been talking about? Well, that means their number is up, right? God reconciling all things to himself in that context means you skip ahead to Revelations 12 and you read about how after Christ descends, Michael and the archangels whoop the crap out of Satan and his demons and kick him out of heaven. That's what reconciled means there. He's making it right. Jesus is making everything right through the cross. Whoop the crap, by the way, is not a technical term. I did not learn that in seminary. It's bonus. Verse 21. Verse 21 is another biggie. Ooh, yeah, we're going to go there. Now he skips. He's out of this thing that might have been an ancient hymn. And now he switches gears a little bit and he starts talking to his audience. He's reminding them. He says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verses 21 and 22. There's so much here, and it's, it's so hopeful and so life-giving. I don't want to skip by it too quick. He says, all you, church, okay? Remember what he called these people at the beginning. He called them saints. Not sinners, not losers, not dirty people. Because if you're in Christ, you're a saint. He uses the word for holy, holy ones. But right now, he's reminding these people that are saints, they're holy ones. Right now, he's reminding them of what they used to be. He says, you who were once alienated. That word alienated can mean transferred to another owner. Banished. That's pretty severe. Mm -hmm. And if you read the scriptures, you figure out who the owner was. Not a good place to be. Kingdom of darkness. You were banished. You were alienated. And you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. There's a principle that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And that is that there is something wrong in the heart of people. There is something desperately wrong. We do bad stuff. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you know what? Those bad things that you do, they are coming out of your heart. They are coming out of your mind. That's the problem. It's not the activity, it's the core. Amen. It's the core. You don't have to fix the wheel bearings or the struts. You bought a lemon. The whole car is bad, okay? It's all bad. Jesus, when he was on earth, man, he always got harassed by these dudes called the Pharisees, and they got kind of a bad rap because they really did go head-to-head with Jesus a lot. But they were arguing with him one time. They were like, oh, you're, you're defiled because you didn't wash your hands before you ate. And Jesus chooses to, like, strike back pretty severely. 
And we can read about this in Mark 7. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's Mark 17, 14 to 23. But Jesus says, you know what? You're defiled by what you do and all the sins that you do. And he lists like theft, fornication, adultery, like activities, things you actually have to physically do. He says, all that comes from the thing that's really defiled, your heart, Amen. your mind. So when Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he says you're alienated and hostile in mind, he's not saying you kind of didn't like God too much. He's saying at your core, you were hostile to God. You were an enemy of God at the core of who you were. And because of that, you did evil deeds. And then 22, and he's now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. You're now reconciled in his body. Body's supposed to be bad, right? The 2,000 years ago? Nope. Body's good. Jesus reconciled you through his sacrifice, through his actual death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. It's hot. I'm getting to the end. Please don't tune out yet. He wanted you to be holy. This is his doing. Okay? This is what he did for you. You don't work this out. You accept it. He wanted to do what he did so that you, 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 all you, and me could be holy and above reproach. What does that mean? Man, this is so deep. I'm almost afraid to say it. <laughs> above reproach before him. Above reproach has the connotation of being unblemished morally, more than that, unpunishable, and unable to be called to account. Ooh, unable to be called to account. That almost doesn't even sound right, does it? It almost sounds like I just spoke heresy, right? Am I really saying that God's intention is for you to be unpunishable? Yes. Why? Because Jesus chose when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, I'm not going to skip this. Father, your will be done. He willfully took the punishment that we very much deserved. So it's not that no punishment has been dealt out. There has been a punishment. But someone else paid it. And because of that, we get Christ's holiness. We get God's righteousness. We get a clean bill. All charges dropped. Unpunishable. Now don't mishear me. If you read the whole of the New Testament and the Old Testament, this is not saying everybody gets a pass no matter what. Okay? And we're going to get to that in a second. But this is saying, if you're in the faith, if you love Jesus, if you can say he's your Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian, you are unpunishable. You're a saint. Get used to it. You're not what you used to be. Praise the Lord. Amen. 23, last verse. And it starts off with a big punch in the gut. If. Man, all that nice stuff, Paul. Now you're going to do this? Bait and switch, man. What are you doing? Come on. You're above reproach. You're unpunishable. You can't be called to account. If, and then he goes on, and this word in the Greek, if, by the way, it means if. You can look it up and check it out. <laughs> Very deep. I did extensive study. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. We're in chapter one of this book. 
Next chapter and the chapter after that, he's going to talk about how people are wanting to convince them through clever arguments and philosophy to change some of their beliefs. And Paul is saying, don't forget how great Jesus is. Don't forget how great what he did for you is. You cannot be shifted. You must hold fast to the truth. Amen. You must hold fast. And sometimes at this point, we want to stop applying that to us because it gets too uncomfortable. And instead, let's argue about something kind of out there. Like, does this mean once saved, always saved? Or does this mean you can lose your salvation? Or what does this mean? Let's just not go there. Let's keep it right here on Anthony Davis and everyone else right where this verse belongs. Because that's what the and you means. It means me. And let's, let's realize that as Bruce said, this is quoted in David Guzik's commentary, continuance is the proof. I'll just read it. I, I'm not sure I could say it exactly as I could. So good. I don't want to skip it. Oh, no, I'm ruining it because of the pause. It's all right. Ah, there it is. Continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality, of your faith. Is your faith real? Well, well 40 years, we'll find out. <laughs> when you die, we'll find out. The Bible says those that endure to the end will be saved, man. Like, you're saved now, but you're also saved later. Another paradox, we can talk about that at a different time. But just endure. He gives you everything you need to endure. And this is the conclusion of the message. This is where I want to stop. And I want to leave it hanging. I want to leave that gift hanging. Paul has just said, all this other stuff is made up and it's a lie. All these other clever arguments are not true. What is true is that God loved you enough to take your punishment and make you unpunishable. You cannot be held to account because God loved you so much. He took all that to you. He's supreme. He made everything. He's number one. He's the king of all things. Who's going to tell him he can't do that? Nobody. He chose to make you holy. Will you endure? Will you continue to believe that? Will you continue to live that faith? Will you do that? And I'm just going to leave tonight's message hanging on that question. Will you endure? And let's pray. Father God, you are good. And Lord, we... Hmm. God, I just thank you that it's not really my responsibility to finish this walk of faith in my own strength. I thank you that you give me the strength to endure. I thank you that none of us have to fail because you freely give ability, you freely give strength, you freely give peace, you freely give joy. Lord, we decide right now that we will endure and right on the heels of that statement, we humbly say, God, we can't do it if you leave us alone. So we thank you that you're never going to leave us alone. We are dependent on you. We rely on you. Ultimately, it has to be you, your strength, your power, and your ability. We choose to receive it and to follow where you go. We love you. Let us know what it's like to be your child more a little bit every day. Thank you for what you did. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, it was long. It was hot, but thank you. There's a prayer team up here. If you need prayer for anything, I would suggest coming up and getting some prayer. But if today you want to live your life to the Lord, today's the best day there's ever been. So I encourage you to do that. Stand up and eat some food. Dismiss. Thanks, guys.